Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Chinese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Lori Dickmeyer. On the podcast today, we are joined by Dr. Sarah Rodriguez, uh, Assistant Professor of History at Missouri State University. Sarah will be telling us about her new book, Reproductive Realities in Modern China, Birth Control and Abortion, 1911 to 2021 which was published by Cambridge University Press in 2023. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yes. Um, As we usually do, could you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this new book? So I um, completed my PhD in modern Chinese history at the University of California, Irvine with you in 2018. (laughs) Um, And this project grew out of my dissertation project. Um, So I became interested in reproduction and contraception in China a long time prior to uh, attending graduate school. Um, In 2009, I started teaching English as my first uh, post undergraduate full-time job. Uh, at a suburban middle school in Guangdong province. And at this time in 2009, it was uh, the, the one child policy was still in full effect. Um, and I had heard like many other people that it was very draconian, harsh and for enforcement of the one child policy. So it was very surprising to me when as a, a young English teacher, I found that I had students with a wide range of uh, family situations from only children to children who had five and six, seven, eight, nine, twelve siblings. Um, and that really kind of uh, piqued my interest in this topic. Then um, in a later at a later position, in 2011, I was teaching at the Nanjing University of Aeronautics and Astronautics in Jiangsu province. Um, and I was I'm not sure why, but I was asked to teach a compulsory class for university faculty and administrators that I probably, oh no, I definitely was not qualified to teach. But in any event, the uh, net result is that I met all of these uh, tenured faculty and people who were very senior in the university. um, And we became friends and they invited me into their homes. I got to know their spouses and children. And as our friendships developed, we eventually stumbled upon the topic of uh, family planning. And it came out that many of of the faculty members um, had not learned about family planning or even the mechanics of sex prior to getting married. Um, And then we we spoke about uh, their experiences under the one child policy, having to have abortions in order to keep their, their positions at the university and things like that. Um, Many of my, uh, I guess you could call them students, though they were really my seniors, um, had undergone multiple abortions um, in accordance with the one child policy, um, and it weighed very heavily on them. 
So when I moved back to the U.S. from China uh, in 2012, in 2013, I started working at the Congressional Executive Commission on China, which is a, a bipartisan organization associated with our government that monitors rule of law issues and uh, human rights violations in China. And for that, I, I was assigned to a project on the one child policy. Um, and I ended up doing like a, my final project, so to speak, on um, uh, specific uh, human rights violations associated with the policy. So at this, looking back on, on my history, it seems like there was a, a a linear trajectory to this point, it was um, preordained, but uh, in reality, these are just, were just things that happened along the way among many experiences that I had. And they ultimately piqued my interest in the history of contraception. So when I got to graduate school and asked my advisors, hey, what, what, what's the history of contraception or reproduction in modern China before the one child policy? And they said, go to the library. My advisor said, go to the library. Um, and I couldn't find anything. And they said, okay, it seems like you might have a dissertation project. <laughs> hey, that worked out pretty well then, right? You had a good question and, it, and uh, that's the start of your project. In hindsight, it seems very straightforward. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I appreciate your point that, that these yeah, these trajectories are not clear at the time, of course. Never. Yeah. Okay, so once you you had your, your question and you're working on your dissertation, um, how, how did you go about that research process of figuring out what uh, birth control and now abortion looked like in, in pre-one child policy China? Um, what kind of sources were you looking at? And uh, I know part of this project included spending a significant time in, in China doing some oral history. So um, could you walk us through that process? Sure. So um, I did my the bulk of my research between 2015 and 2019. So it, it cut off right before uh, the onset of COVID and the big disruption in the kind of research landscape. So in that sense, I was fortunate. Um, but due to various factors, uh, I started out with just published sources that I could access through my university's library. So I was looking at um, magazines and newspapers and, and things that uh, were still extremely interesting, but not, they wouldn't be called like the, the gems that we associate with archival materials. So I went to, um, I used all these databases and started um, visiting other universities' libraries and, and looking at uh, old, old magazines mostly. And at that point, um, I thought, okay, I need, if I'm going to focus on the, the PRC period, I can't just be relying on magazines because they're, well, there's a very limited range of materials in that sense. So I looked at like Zhongguo Funyu, the uh, Women of China magazine, which was a good starting point for me. And it's something that transcends the 49 divide, which was helpful. Um, but once I got to China to, to start doing my research, I was sort of um, at a loss as to where I could find a, a comprehensive body of materials on this topic. So I used, a, as I tend to, a rather unconventional approach, which was 
just to go to as many archives as I could in the target areas and see if if I had any luck and then try to adapt the project to the kind of on the ground realities of doing archival research. And that proved both challenging and uh, worthwhile. On the one hand, it, it quickly became evident that some archives were not available to me. Um, I wasn't allowed in or I wasn't allowed to access anything besides like the index or um, there were all, you know, myriad different challenges. And so um, that's, I, I can talk about that a little bit more later, but that was part of why I um, settled on the places that I did. Um, and the final stage, so I did started with the published materials and I moved to archival materials. And finally I um, got into my interviews and the interviews are the thing that took, took me, were the last thing that I, so I, I was working on the archival research mainly in 2015 to 2017. But the um, interviews took me all the way up through 2019 because I had to do follow-up interviews and um, try to address topics that I had overlooked or not approached in quite the way I had hoped to initially. Hmm. Um, and this is something that you address in your introduction, but how did you find your interviewees? You're asking uh, people in China about very private matters. That that seems like something that might be difficult to approach. Um, yeah, it, definitely. And I um, have much gratitude for the individuals who are willing to share what's arguably the most personal aspects of one's life with someone who could be perceived as a complete stranger, or if even if we had developed a relationship with an outsider. Um, so the way that I went about finding interviewees, I was sort of using a snowball sampling approach where you meet one person and that person introduces you to other people who are willing to participate in the study. But I, I think that kind of social scientific framework takes, makes, takes out the kind of lively <laughs> human aspect of it. The, the reality was that I had friends whose parents would um, allow me to interview them. And that was a good starting point. But at the end of the day, um, I found that I, I didn't just want to interview people who were associated with the government or people who were associated with the China's family planning infrastructure. I just wanted to interview regular people, whatever that means. So the, the best way I could come up with to do this while staying kind of under the, the radar politically was to um, meet up with elderly people, senior citizens in public places where I knew they would be found uh, regularly. So um, twice a day for a year, I went um, to public parks where I knew that uh, senior groups would be uh, you know, hanging out, uh, old, older people would be gossiping, they would be playing with their grandchildren, they would be, you know, planning the menu for dinner or what have you, playing um, chess, things like that. So I went to the these these public parks twice a day for a year, and I met a wide range of people. Um, and of course, you can imagine, uh, some people initially saw me this at that time, I was in my late 20s. And they said, what is this you know, white girl doing here in this park, um, and they would talk to me. And if I couldn't get anyone to to pay attention to me, which um, happened a fair amount, I would bring in my backpack like my personal collection of 
50 sexual hygiene guides, which are actually very explicit. Um, if you look inside, they, they could, I think, be a, a, offensive to some people who might say they're kind of pornographic, <laughs> but they're basically just step-by-step uh, -step guides to anatomy and, and sex from the 1950s. Um, so I would put these uh, books out in front of me, like on the grass or on a bench, a park bench, and people would <laughs> come over and say, oh my God, where did you get that? Why, why do you have this? Um, tell me about, let, let me tell you about my experience with this book, or you need to put that book away because that's dirty and you're embarrassing me. Um, and so I, I got a lot of different reactions from different types of people, um, which it always sparked good conversation. And then I would stay in touch with, with those people and we would sometimes meet repeatedly. Sometimes we just met once for a longer period of time. Um, but the, without those kind of props, I don't, it would have been more difficult to kind of spark conversation. And also uh, it was a good way of, of, um, of reminding people of things they may have forgotten. They, uh, they're like, hey, I, I did see that 40 years ago or 60 years ago. Let me tell you about my experience. So it was my kind of weird unconventional methodology that I I think made the project really fun. Um, but I also, I want to emphasize that uh, doing this type of oral history or even like sort of pseudo ethnographic work requires an, an enormous emotional investment if you want to do it the right way. And I tried to do it the, the right way. I, um, I didn't want it to be just a kind of a one way um, an extractive model. I wanted it to be like developing a friendship. So um, it wasn't the, the people I was talking to, we, it was really a dialogue. I would share information about myself and my culture and my personal history um, and debates about abortion and birth control in the United States. And we would go back and forth. Um, so I, I felt like it, it took perhaps more work, but it, it was really emotionally fulfilling and intellectually fulfilling. Yeah, that sounds like a, a really good way to handle it, I think. Um, and it's always good to hear more about how you how you went about those interviews. Um, oh, can yeah. I add one thing? Please, yeah. One thing that my students always get a kick out of if I tell them about uh, my research um, when I do is when I told them that I uh, joined a uh, senior citizens group that uh, gave out raw eggs for every session you attend and that I would swap my one raw egg for a story from for a conversation with a senior person in the group. Um, and it, <laughs> it, it was really funny because I, I didn't hadn't even intended on joining these types of groups, but I got kind of pulled into it. And then I ended up getting pulled into um, ballroom dancing, uh, belly dancing, babysitting, you name it, all sorts of different types of activities that like older people do. And that's how um, I developed these kind of friendships and relationships. Yeah, that is really pretty amazing. Um, and, and I know that throughout your book, you're also drawing upon a lot of other types of sources beyond the ones you've even mentioned. There's a lot of um, uh, material culture in there with the, the, the booklets you've been talking about, but also um, a, lot of, a lot of media of like films and, and books, which I found really exciting too. Um, but let's turn back to the book itself. Um, you cover, again, a really 
broad uh, range of time, uh, 1911 to, uh, as the book is called, uh, 1911 to 2021 there. Uh, why did you decide to take such a, you know, a long period of time? Um, I know you're perhaps interested in in bridging that divide between one child policy and before one child policy, but can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so there's pros and cons to taking a long durée approach. On the one hand, I felt like focusing such a, on such a long period of time not only allowed me to, like you mentioned, to to see what preceded and even came after the one child policy, it allowed me to transcend that 1949 divide. And I think the majority of work that focuses on um, family planning or reproduction in, in the 20th century focuses on either you know, one half of the 1949 divide or the other. So I wanted to, to cross that, um, that break. And I also wanted to cross the break um, from the Mao era to the post Mao era. So that was already, I was finding that if I wanted to do all of those things, I would need to consider a very long period of time. And that was fruitful in that it allowed me to see and highlight continuities and changes that wouldn't otherwise have been evident to me. Uh, that being said, uh, the real downside to that is, you know, you can't, as I was told my students, you can't do everything. And so, um, you know, things are lost. You don't get that kind of granular history that um, that you might have gotten had I worked on like, let's say a 10 year period, I could have really done a micro history and dug deep in. Um, but I'd like to think that there are some benefits to looking at at a, a really long range of time that you wouldn't otherwise get if you if I had focused on a shorter period. Yeah. And uh, also, we're thinking about time, but what about place? Uh, in again, in your introduction and throughout the book, you're focusing on three cities: Shanghai, Tianjin, and Luoyang, um, at, for your your case studies. Can you explain why you chose these three places? We always have to make choices, so why these three? Great question. So as I sort of um, mentioned earlier, a lot of it had to do with ease of access to archives as as all of the listeners um, to this podcast probably know, archival access is, is a constantly evolving situation that can be highly problematic. And even in the pre-COVID days, there, were, there was already this clamp down on access that was taking place. So um, I knew I wanted to focus on Shanghai for all of the reasons that I think lots of other scholars do. There's, uh, there's this openness in archival access. There's this long, uh, rich written history, and um, there's really a wealth of materials, even even with digitization and various other things, there's still a wealth of materials on Shanghai that are uh, available today. Tianjin, I chose Tianjin because it had a, a different historical trajectory from Shanghai. Um, it had had, of course, uh, uh, this long history of contact with the West, but it, it was a slightly different history. Um, given the way that Tianjin was kind of divided up in the uh, Republican period. Also the Tianjin Municipal Archive, um, yeah, I found that it was somewhat easy to uh, obtain access to materials, not just on um, the Republican period, but also on the PRC period. 
uh, Luoyang was kind of um, accidental. So my friend who was kind enough to, who is from Luoyang, whose um, mom and parents both are involved with the state family planning apparatus. My friend invited me to Luoyang to interview his parents. And then um, he generously took me to the Luoyang Municipal Archive. Um, when I returned to Luoyang alone the following year, um, the archivist said, hey, I recognize you from last time you were here. You're like the only foreigner who's ever shown an interest in this archive. Um, and I happened to have come on a day when she was in having a really bad day. And, and, and so the archivist said, um, I'm gonna let you look at a lot of materials and without getting her in any trouble. She said, I'll let you look at some materials that I might not otherwise have. And um, and we did an interview and developed a relationship. And so that's how Luoyang came to be part of my study. But it, it helped that the that kind of more broadly, these three cities um, are distinct in a lot of different ways. They have different, completely different population sizes, different histories. And Luoyang doesn't even have uh, archival materials from pre-1949. So it's it's working with, uh, it involved working with three very different kind of situations. Mm. Well, that's amazing. Uh, I think now we'll turn to, you know, the meat of your book and start to talk through uh, some of these different periods that you're, you're, you're parsing through. Uh, the first two chapters, you go chronologically, uh, the first two chapters deal with the Republican period. And uh, the first one seems to address more of the discussions that elite reformers are having about uh, birth control, abortion, the nation, uh, and the second one a little bit more about uh, what was happening on the ground uh, regarding these practices. So I wonder if first you could uh, talk us through what's going on with these, these reformers and uh, how the historical context is at play here. We have, uh, you know, East Asia in the early 1920s, Margaret Sanger is visiting, uh, we have eugenics across the world being discussed, uh, we have new texts coming from the West and from Japan that are being translated into to Chinese. Um, so what, what kind of discourses are we having uh, come from these these different areas. Yeah, so um, eugenics uh, is, I guess, a good starting point. Eugenics <laughs> was like a global language in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And China, uh, as many scholars have shown, was very much a part of this, this global conversation about what it means to be modern, what, it, what a modern nation's public health should look like, the relationship between so-called genetics and the status the political status of a nation, et cetera. So um, the the concept of eugenics, or I guess the the more modern version of eugenics uh, that came from outside of China came from Japan in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, and the 1920s and 30s are an extremely dynamic period in Chinese history. So there's uh, all sorts of different types of things are being translated from foreign languages into um, Chinese at this during this period. And it just so happens that in 1922, Margaret Sanger, the 
arguable global uh, leader in family planning visits, visits China for the first time. And Margaret Sanger is best known for, among other things, coining the term birth control. Um, she's known for starting a birth control clinic in New York and getting arrested. And uh, she's in some ways is like, a, a feminist liberal icon, but then she has, of course, this dark side where she ends up um, uniting with eugenicists to promote her, uh, to promote access to birth control. And this, of course, ultimately completely tarnishes her, um, her legacy. So Margaret Sanger comes to, to East Asia, including China in the 1920s. And she happens to come at a time during the May 4th movement um, May 4th new culture movement when there's already a lot of different kinds of discussions going on about how to modernize China, how to save China uh, from disintegrating in the face of, of uh, Western imperialism, um, what kind of political model to take on, how to, to literally strengthen China using the, the, the genetics of its population. Um, so there's some, some elites saw uh, Margaret Sanger uh, and eugenics as a whole as a way to save the Chinese nation. They, they thought, well, if we introduce um, birth control, we can basically prevent undesirable people, quote unquote, undesirable people with illnesses that we perceive to be bad um, from reproducing. And this will strengthen the racial stock, which is a, was a common way of, of conceptualizing the world at this time. Other people uh, embraced positive eugenics. And so they said, okay, um, instead of focusing on limiting births among a, a particular group, we could instead focus on having people who are desirable, desirable make more so-called higher quality babies. So people who are wealthier and better educated are, um, of course, this is not necessarily true, but the assumption was that if you are wealthy and well-educated, your children will be of a higher quality, whatever that means. Other people saw, um, saw Sanger's ideas about birth control um, as tools for other of their like kind of political agendas, um, particularly curbing abortions and abortions were perceived as, as backward and dangerous and um, a kind of marring China's international reputation. So birth control could prevent abortion. It can, could prevent child abandonment and the need to put children in orphanages. It could prevent infanticide, which Michelle King has shown um, is largely associated with China. Uh, even today, people think of uh, female infanticide or infanticide in general as something they associate with China. So all contraception could, could, could solve all of these myriad different issues. And a small contingent of people also wanted to ease the burden of women, particularly poor women. But I would say on the whole, uh, the position of, of individual women and the circumstances they found themselves in were not really the main, the main uh, point of these conversations. The, the conversations uh, at, at a broader level were largely dominated by men and largely dominated by elite men whose concerns were, quote unquote, saving, saving the nation, preventing the race from disappearing or um, 
uh, or degenerating or whatever. Uh, and so the, the concern was not for these poor women whose reality was having uh, successive births that was a, a massive um, financial burden and a physical and emotional burden as well. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, I think that naturally leads to the next chapter where you talk about um, what was happening more on the ground, uh, looking at birth control and practice, and you explore a wide range of contraceptive and abortive techniques available to women in urban China at the time. So uh, can you briefly tell us what kinds of things were women doing regarding birth control uh, in urban Republican China? Sure. So. Um, it's worth noting that um, abortions under most circumstances uh, could be pun were punishable by law for much of the Republican period. Um, and starting in 1928, any drugs with abortifacient properties could not be advertised as such. So um, if a, a, a pharmacy deliberately posted an, an ad saying, hey, we have a product that also happens to abort uh, a pregnancy, that could lead to, you know, legal repercussions or a police raid or something like that. That being said, at least from what I, uh, the materials I looked at, it seems like abortions um, were relatively common and appear to be the most common form of contraception or, or for, not contraception, but fertility regulation uh, apparent in this period. And of course, it, it's it's complicated because. Uh, contraception itself wasn't wasn't always legal or wasn't always illegal. So um, we get a lot of, as historians, we get a lot of our sources from things being illegal, uh, you know, court records and things like that. So things that that were not controversial would just kind of pass under the radar. So that makes um, tracing this history a little bit more complicated. But from what I can see, women from a, a wide range of of backgrounds uh, were undergoing abortions um, or using these products called Chiao Jingyao. Um, Chiao Jingyao are amenagogues, so pills that are designed to, um, to bring on regular menstruation. And these are products that um, can be found in all over the world in a variety of different contexts, mass pro produced and homemade. Um, but what, what's interesting about Chiao Jingyao is um, they were they themselves were not considered to be problematic because um, in traditional Chinese medicine and I think in a lot of other places having a regular regular menstrual cycle was associated with good health. So if if there was a delay in a menstrual cycle, it wouldn't have been abnormal to take an amenagogue to bring on. Uh, the regular menses. That being said, uh, when a woman is is newly pregnant um, and she takes an abortifacient or even an amenagogue, it, the result looks the same. It looks like menstrual blood. So there's a really fine line between what's a so-called early early stage abortion and what is just inducing um, these delayed menses. And so that kind of created a space or and a kind of product that. Um, was seems to have been widely available and is still available today that could toe the line uh, between uh, the ban on abortion and the kind of precarious posi position of contraception. Um, it's, it seems, it's worth noting, though, that uh, while lots of different types of women 
seem to have been using these sorts of products. There were, there were a lot of different, um, there were folk remedies, there were surgical abortions, there were lots of different options at, available at different price points and for different like audiences or different groups. Um, I don't know if this would necessarily be empowering. It, it, that's always a difficult question um, because the results uh, vary greatly. And often it seems like women from a lower social status or lower, lower social class were most likely to be caught and, and tried for using these products rather than the, the women who were more sheltered from the law who often were had more money. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing that you you found in this chapter is that, you know, these practices and the reasons that women were, were using, uh, you know, contraceptives and abortion were entirely different from what those elite, mostly male reformers had been talking about in the previous chapter, right? Definitely. Um, so some women were using, uh, were undergoing abortions due to poverty. Um, some were afraid they would lose their job. Some were uh, having sex in a context that was not deemed kind of socially acceptable. Uh, for example, like a widow who whose spouse has died long, long ago, and she um, takes a lover for various reasons and becomes pregnant. Um, that's a, a very real situation, and it could be could have terrible uh, social consequences for the widow. Um, but that's not the kind of conversations that you know, elite reformers were having. And they certainly weren't trying to like air that kind of dirty laundry as they perceived it. Right. Okay. Why don't we turn to your third chapter? And so this will um, bring us forward in time to the early PRC, uh, 1949 to 1958. Um, you know, famously during these early years, Mao and the Chinese Communist Party espoused a pro-natalist policy, which encouraged married couples to have children, lots of children. Um, so given this stance, how did birth planning then emerge as, you know, the central policy of the PRC? So the 1950s, uh, this early period, I think is really, really interesting. I mean, I think it's all interesting, but I, I really like the 1950s for reasons I can't explain. But um so in these in the early years between like 1949 and 1952, there's this this increasing crackdown on um, access to birth control, access to books about birth control. But it's highly like everything in the PRC, it is highly uneven. Um, the idea is that uh, the PRC wanted to. So according to um, Marx, there there was no such thing as overpopulation in a communist context because overpopulation assumes that there's a lack of social services and a, 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 a social network. Um, but in in the context of, of a communist country, there would always be unlimited services, free health care, uh, uh, universal employment, um, child care, etc. So in that in that sense, um, it was impossible for there to be too many people. And in fact, the idea was that the more people you have, the more the larger the labor force. And when you have more people doing more stuff, uh, many hands make light work. So uh, apparently that's the way to go. Um, in 1953, China the, or the PRC had its first 
official census that revealed that um, the country was experiencing population growth on a, a scale that nobody could have anticipated. Um, and it started to kind of dawn on uh, political leaders that maybe we, we can't support this type of unmitigated population growth. We already are dealing with food shortages and we're in the midst of making this massive transition to, to communism. I don't think we can necessarily um, take on any more mouths. There's uh, also a, during this period and there's a lot of variation depending on the year, but there's concerns about labor inefficiency and at various points wanting women to either be working in the home or working outside of the home. Um, and when it becomes apparent that women can't have, you know, seven children and have a full-time job outside of the home and um, do all of the, the domestic stuff, it, this, it becomes evident that maybe having just unlimited children isn't, isn't a good model in terms of increasing labor uh, efficiency and, and women's workforce participation. So I uh, birth planning grew out of very like practical concerns. The, the question of how to feed the population, the question of what to do with women, um, and the question of how how China should develop and modernize. Mm -hmm. uh, and during this period, do, do you see a big change in the kind of birth control practices that are happening on the ground? in response to the CCP? That's a great question. Um, and I guess it's one of the things that makes studying the early 50s so much fun, even though often we find ourselves coming to the same conclusions, like, whoa, things didn't change that much since the 1940s. But still, every time it has the same magic, uh, <laughs> the feeling of gratification. Wow, I didn't guess that would happen. Mm -hmm. um, but, but many of the, the techniques that couples or women would have been using in the 20s and 30s and 40s were, were still apparent in the 1950s. Um, so there would have been less, uh, perhaps less of an emphasis on abortion because abortion was not permitted, but there would have been homemade contraceptives. So um, using like uh, cotton swabs or other materials and dipping them in, a, in an acidic solution and inserting them before sex to prevent conception. There were a limited supply, there was a limited supply of condoms um, in the 1950s. Um, and if you read the book thing or heard me talk about it, you know that condoms used to be uh, typically reused many, many times um, until they broke. And the only way to know if they broke, of course, other than getting pregnant accidentally was by filling them with water or filling them with air like a balloon and seeing if they were punctured. Um, so due to, to limited resources and uneven resources, uh, condoms were in the mix, but weren't necessarily a great option. Um, there was also uh, the use of Lysol um, as a, not a bathroom cleaning agent, but as uh, a tool for uh, uh, killing sperm, a spermicide. And this is not a uniquely Chinese uh, idea by any means. Um, Lysol was, would have been commonly used in the United States and in Great Britain uh, in the 1920s and 30s, et cetera. One of, I think, the most 
um, or things that people <laughs> seem to find the most interesting is the fact that uh, in the 1950s that there was a small contingent of people who were using, who were imbibing tadpoles, a reg tadpole regimen as a way to prevent um, conception or to uh, lead to um, an, like terminate a pregnancy. And I think what's most remarkable about that is um, not the fact that it happened, but the fact that the Chinese government took it so seriously that it actually, you know, went through two years of rigorous testing of these methods to see if mice who ate uh, tadpoles got still got pregnant. And lo and behold, <laughs> they did. <laughs> so that method, thankfully, was uh, not made standard. <laughs> but um, so there were would have been for for people in urban areas, there would have been quite a few different possibilities for birth control practices. But that being said, there were massive shortages of, of um, like the material goods needed for uh, producing and using birth control. If you left an urban area, you would have probably had uh, an enormous amount of difficulty finding uh, uh, birth control materials. And they were always, they seem to have been consistently out of stock and um, also not very reliable even when they were in stock. So um, there is a diversity. People really drew on their own ingenuity to try to curb their, their fertility um, with all sorts of different uh, results. Yeah. Now the, the tadpole uh, <laughs> method, uh, that one did stick out to me while I was reading the book for sure. Okay, uh, so let's let's move on with your book. Um, in chapter four, uh, you are looking at the period after the Great Leap Forward, so 1959 into 65. And here you're you're talking about how local officials tested soft tactics. Uh, to try to encourage birth planning. So how did how did they try to promote birth planning? Um, what kind of response are they getting to to these various efforts? Uh, what did you find there? So not so differently from under the way things were under the one child policy, local officials really draw on a very broad range of materials for promoting birth planning. They um, produce songbooks, posters, uh, birth control product exhibits, plays, pamphlets, um, work units would have focused, mandatory focus groups to talk about birth control experiences. Trade unions would have focus groups and exhibits as well. Um, so there's a wide range of different types of, of materials that local officials are drawing on and they would um, perhaps like hang posters saying the benefits of family planning inside of um, a factory or inside of a, a dormitory or something like that. So um, in this period, there's, there's a, an attempt to be slightly more systematic, but the, the focus is not on forcing people to use contraception. As when we think of the one child policy, the, the mind always goes to coercion. But in this period, uh, and in the 1950s, uh, documents from the government suggest that this should always be voluntary, hence the need to rely on thing, things like songs and posters. So people should be persuaded that it is in their best interest to use contraception um, or that it's in their best interest to delay marriage a few years, which will 
then allow them to not only contribute to the nation, but to uh, achieve their personal goals of studying and working and contributing to the nation, as one does. <laughs> um, and these materials are noteworthy. Uh, and this is a trend that continues up through the present in, in that all of these efforts to promote birth planning uh, or Wanghun delayed marriage, late marriage, they focus almost exclusively on women. And so one finds that it's almost like the men aren't even there. Um, the books are designed for women. Posters are depicting women um, persuading their family members and their husbands to uh, to have fewer children or convincing their mother and mothers-in-law that isn't it is in their best interest to wait to try to have a grandson and things like that. Um, and the men seem to kind of lack agency. I don't know if I would say they lack agency, but they're just they're not a, ma a major consideration. Um, and some some Nebu uh, Sangkao materials uh, show that men were in fact resistant to going to these um, like these focus groups and were resistant to, to family planning. But the focus is still remains on women, even though it's men who are often dragging their feet. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I got that sense from your discussion of uh, the oral histories that you conducted and even, you know, people's responses to the materials that they were being offered, right? That women were expected to engage more fully and men kind of saw it as women's business that they need to take care of that. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. So, why don't we turn to chapter five? Um, I enjoyed this chapter a lot. Uh, you know, just thinking about how the disruptions of, you know, the sixties and the seventies impacted people and and uh, and their sex and birth control practices. So here we're talking about the cultural revolution and the sent down youth movement. Um, what what kinds of impacts did those have on on your subject matter, birth control? So the Cultural Revolution and, to a lesser extent, the Sent Down Youth Movement have been studied at great, great length by many, many different and very prominent scholars, but um, only a, a small number of them have focused on the way that sex and birth control fit into these larger movements. So obviously the Cultural Revolution and the Sent Down mo Youth Movement um, lead to these these dramatic changes in society. There's uh, like violent mobilization. There's um, young people traveling around the country, uh, trying to ignite class struggle, fighting with each other in their schools and debating. Um, and then the sent down youth movement comes into the picture. And now many of these these so-called red guards, these um, mobilized Maoist youth, are now being told that they shouldn't be so aggressive and they need to go down to the countryside so they can learn from their uh, like rural peers and also they can stop causing so much turmoil in the cities. Um, but the the unintended result of, of these two movements is that we have all of these young people moving around in unprecedented ways across the country. They're moving from cities to the countryside, from the countryside to the city etc. And they're often unsupervised in a way that they wouldn't have been in kind of normal life because um, of Mao's willingness to, to, to see young people as, as their own 
entities, he <laughs> over empowers them in some sense by sending them to all of these different places without their parents to break down, you know, feudal traditions and the like. Um, but we have all of these young people who are out meeting other young people. And even though they're supposed to be engaged in these important political acts, the reality is when you send a lot of you know, teenagers to live in the countryside and to work in very harsh conditions, um, the reality is that there's going to be sex and there's going to be sexual violence. Um, and so there, in these circumstances, we see um, record numbers of rapes, although the, the data for that is a little bit dicey as I get into it in my book. Um, but there are reports of se sexual violence. There are reports of uh, young people cohabitating. So they wouldn't normally have the opportunity to live with the opposite sex unsupervised. But um, given the realities of, of life in the countryside, that does become an option for many. Um, and although there is this movement in the 60s and 70s, and increasingly in the 70s, to bring all sexual activity into the fold of the, the government, um, because there's all of this uh, movement going on and there's a lot of local variation, local policing in the countryside does not match up with what these high level policies are saying. So the high level policies are saying um, that as of 1971, there should be um, universal and free access to contraceptives uh, everywhere. But, uh, and people in the cities were being encouraged and, and increasingly kind of coerced into uh, relying on family planning. There were, was a, a, a system of incentives and disincentives to, to limit their reproductive autonomy. But in the countryside, you have all of these young people who probably in most cases didn't have access to prophylactics because prophylactics would have been largely confined to people who were married. So this idea that there's uh, universal access to free contraceptives is really only, that's only targeting married people. So you have all these young unmarried people who um, really don't have much knowledge about sex or how to protect themselves in cases of sexual violence. Um, and so they're in the countryside they are having sex often without these prophylactics because they don't know about them or don't have access to them. And that ultimately leads to a lot of unintended pregnancies. Um, and unintended pregnancy it carries with it a lot of social and uh, financial repercussions. Socially, it, it, could, it would be perceived as, as uh, taboo and detrimental to a, a young person's reputation particularly a young woman. Also, thanks to the HUCO residence permit system, if somebody got pregnant out of wedlock, the, the child would not be given a residence permit um, if it was born out of wedlock. And the residence permit is essential for gaining access to a wide range of social services that are necessary. So this, this really put young people in a, in a pickle. Um, and also the local police, or not the local police, the local local officials were heavily policing abortions. So these young people were put in a situation where the only option for them would have been a, a dangerous, potentially dangerous or back alley abortion. Um, and then 
even if they were, I don't know if the word lucky, but if they were able to procure uh, something, an abortion that was uh, allowed them to get away unscathed and to be um, not be caught, if, if local officials found out, they would um, punish those people who were involved with the abortion. So there was really no way out for these young people. Um, and I argue in my book that that it's this set of circumstances, as well as the fact that um, men just in general seem to be reticent to engage in family planning, that it's this set of, of, of circumstances that inadvertently creates a culture of relying of, on abortion as, as a form of primary form of fertility control. So instead of preemptively addressing the issue, there's this retroactive effort to address unwanted pregnancies and that leads to this over-reliance on abortion. Yeah. Yeah, again, I, I thought this this chapter was really fascinating, but I want to make sure that we have time to talk about your, your final chapter as well, which I'm sure is of a lot of interest to folks, which is the, the rise and fall of the one-child policy from 1979 to 2015. Um, and as you note in this chapter, this is a topic that's been covered by a lot of different scholars, but you do focus on a few uh, what you call underexplored themes of the period, uh, local reception of the policy, the challenge of introducing sex education, and a few other topics. Um, but what, what stood out to you um, in, in these kind of under, underexplored areas? So I one of the things that stood out to me was um, the, the amount of variation in experiences with the one-child policy, there's a, a tendency to kind of generalize the one-child policy is, is coercive. Everybody had one child, that's it. Um, when the reality is much more complicated, as other scholars have, have shown um, in 1984, uh, a lot of the original stipulations associated with one-child policy were rolled back. So some people were allowed to have um, a second child in the event that the first child was a girl or if they had rural hukou and things like that. Um, but I also found that, uh, at least among my interviewees, um, there were quite a few different responses to the one-child policy, whereas some people felt um, it was uh, completely out of line and it was you know, a violation of their autonomy, others supported it and felt that it was good for the nation. Uh, other people had really kind of practical concerns that had nothing to do with the, the trajectory of the economy. They were really more like weighing their the risks involved in violating the policy and decided at the end of the day, they really couldn't afford to to risk um, violating the policy and incurring these massive fees or losing their jobs and the like. Um, and often, as other people have explored at length, the, the uh, kind of main factor was whether or not the, the couple already had a son. It was much easier to go along with the one-child policy when one was secure in knowing that they had someone to carry on the, the family line uh, on the male side. Um, and also, there, from the perspective of local policy enforcement, it seems like in 
it it depended the, the degree to which the policy was actually enforced enforced depended greatly on the year in which a, and the location in which a particular thing was happening. So oftentimes um, in some years and in some locations, local officials might be more lenient. Um, they might say, okay, you're, we're not gonna forcibly sterilize you. We'll just make you have an IUD inserted or you got pregnant outside of the policy. We're gonna penalize you, but we're not gonna make you lose your job or we're not gonna force you to undergo an abortion, which is sort of the, the thing that a lot of Americans take great issue with, that the one-child policy, um, any out-of-policy out of or any birth outside of pregnancy outside of the policy would have been automatically aborted. And that that's not, uh, that wasn't the case in the, a lot of the interviews that I did. So um, I thought that was really interesting. Um, yeah, so I guess that, that speaks to really the point that um, people's experiences are highly, highly diverse and um, enforcement was highly uneven across a 36 year period. There's bound and such a vast and diverse country, there's bound to be variation. And indeed there is. Yeah. Um, I know we're running out of time, but there's one other thing I wanted to ask you about this chapter, which is you kind of pick up the theme of eugenics again, we come back to the beginning of the book. So can you talk a little bit about how eugenics thinking reappears during this time? Yeah, so I don't think eugenics ever goes away, even when it's politically incorrect to to outwardly endorse eugenics, like in the 1950s. It's, there's still a eugenic logic to a lot of the policies. Um, and what I think is most interesting is if, you know, you go to a party in the United States today and you say, oh, I like, I support eugenics, people will think you're out of your mind. Um, and of course, eugenics are largely associated with the Holocaust. Um, and for many people, there's this, an assumption that with the Holocaust, eugenics kind of died because it became evident that there, it's just it, an incorrect way of thinking. But mm. that's that's not true in, in other places, other parts of the world, other time periods. Eugenics never went really out of style or became as taboo as they are, let's say, in the United States. So um, what I found really fascinating was going to family planning, cl family planning clinics and seeing posters on the walls that said, literally, we promote eugenic births. We want superior births and superior babies. And this was a, a literal exact uh, echoing or repetition of what had been stated in the 1920s. Um, so eugenics, on a superficial level never went out of style and the the logic behind them of wanting to improve the population quality so to speak um, through uh, optimizing the qualities of children and putting um, trying to prevent various illnesses and things like that that never really went away or went out of style and the one child policy simply exacerbated it by giving couple, many couples simply one chance to get it right in their view. Mm -hmm. All right, so we are kind of coming to the end of the interview, but I have just a couple more questions. Uh, first of all, is there anything else you would like to let listeners know about your book? Things I'd like to let listeners know. Well, um, as I mentioned before, uh, my a lot of academic work, I, well, I can't speak to what a lot of academic 
are motivated by, but I can speak to my own motivation, which is not just intellectual, but also emotional. And I think uh, my work, I hope, reflects my deep commitment to reproductive justice in a variety of contexts. Um, I know that it happens, the publication of this book happened for better or for worse to coincide with the rollback of Roe v. Wade and a lot of uh, conversations in the United States about uh, reproductive health and abortion and things like that. Um, and it's those conversations that in part motivated me to look into this project. Um, but I think at the end of the day, it's the actual people who are living this history that are the ones that matter. Um, and so those are the people I'm not just writing for myself, but I like to think that I'm writing for those people as well. Very nice. Um, and last question, is there anything you can share about uh, the work that you're doing right now? Any any new research, new research since this book? So one of the great joys of doing research for my first book was, or was interviewing senior citizens and hanging out with them and learning about their day-to-day -day experiences and the challenges they face, um, and both physically and emotionally, financially, et cetera. Um, and I found that uh, that was like, it felt like my calling. I really enjoyed um, hearing about how older, how people were making sense of aging. So. My next project is going to look at experiences with aging and how the perceived timeline of aging has changed since 1949. Um, does the, the kind of periodization of one's life change uh, with different uh, periods in Maoist and post-Mao history? Um, and I want to also, this is an, a, a time when demographic issues and the issue of, of uh, swelling senior population is increasingly in the news. It's not just a Chinese phenomenon. This is happening in many parts of the world, especially East Asia. Um, so I really want to look at how the, the rollback of the collective era social safety net and um, limited access to healthcare, the one child policy and various other factors have impacted the sorts of, of issues and challenges that the elderly face. Um, this project also comes out of dealing with issues of aging in my own life. And I feel that kind of like with reproduction, aging is, is something that's in some ways inevitable and it in, impacts everybody. You're either trying to reproduce or you're trying not to reproduce. You're either aging and accepting it or you're aging and resisting it. Um, obviously, that's an oversimplification, but I see this as fitting in the same sort of being in the same kind of genre of research that has some sort of universal impact, but um, or relevance, but is specific to Chinese history and specific um, to the circumstances that I'm looking at. So, if you're listening to this and you would like to talk to me, or you know somebody who would like to talk to me about experiences with aging, or you know of source relevant source material, I would be absolutely thrilled to hear from you. That sounds like an amazing project, Sarah. I'm looking forward to reading the book in a few years down the line, probably. Um, <laughs> so uh, I just want to thank you again for taking the time to join us and to talk about your wonderful book. Uh, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, Sarah. Thank you so much, Lori. I really appreciate you taking the time to interview me.
And thanks to everyone who's turned into the episode. Uh, you've been listening to New Books in Chinese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you.